Well, thank you again for joining me here on the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. Before we get into the episode, I want to just give a little illustration of what we talked about in the last couple of episodes, in which I argued that what we observe in the Old Testament Mosaic Law is not slavery as we think of it today. Rather, it was a kind of debt servitude where a person would find themselves in debt, and then to get out of it, they would bind themselves to the creditor to pay back the debt. They would do this by working for basically half or little wages, and they couldn't really do anything else until they had paid it off. They weren't free to seek other employment, or they couldn't run away. Now, I argued that the entire economic thrust of the Mosaic Law showed that God also had laws that were to mitigate the number of poor people in Israel and were based on his expressed ideal that there would be no poor people among them. In that context, that is tantamount to saying that there would be no more slaves among them at all. As we saw, he even commanded laws that freed slaves and expunged debt on a regular basis. These were the Sabbath year laws in the years of Jubilee. Now, I've tried to show that God often works in ways that are subversive to culture without directly addressing whatever the issue is. We saw this in the context of divorce, where God permitted divorce because of the hardness of the people's heart, but he worked to undermine it. Now, in that culture, there were no bankruptcy laws. There were no credit collections agencies, no debt consolidation firms. It was a subsistence and barter culture. In this series, I tried to think of something analogous to that culture within our own historical context, and the closest I could find was that of the kind of indentured servitude that the early settlers experienced when they would attach themselves to a wealthy man or a family to purchase their way over, and then they'd basically be free labor to him until the debt was repaid and they'd learn a trade while doing it. Well, I was actually recently watching an episode of the show Alaskan Bush People on the Discovery Channel uh, this last week and saw this exact principle in action. <clears throat> it is my... Uh, Skeleton in the Closet Secret, uh, one of my favorite shows. It's really entertaining if you haven't had a chance to see it. Uh, if you have and you don't like it, well, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, the show is basically based around the lives of the Brown family who live in the wilds of the forests of Alaska, really off the grid. They live off the land, and they hardly enjoy any of the modern comforts. This has created an interesting little subculture for them where they even have developed their own dialect. Well... In the very first episode of the show, season one, episode one, Billy, who's the father, needs to buy timber from a miller uh, in order to build his, build his family a new cabin and uh, on their new land that they just acquired. But the miller is asking for more money than Billy has to pay. So, what's the solution that they come to? Well, Billy pays him $5,000 for the wood, but it still leaves him in debt. Right? That's only about half the cost of the wood. So what does he offer? His sons as free labor. Yes, that's right. In order to get this timber from the miller, Billy must go into debt, but without a means of raising capital, he must barter another way to pay back the debt, and they agree to his sons working for the miller until the debt is paid. Not only is this subsistence living and the barter economy a much more analogous economic situation to what we find in the ancient Near East, 
but Billy and the Miller had almost zero moral difficulty in accepting his sons as free labor to pay back the debt. They had become bond servants to the Miller. They were bound to the Miller without wage until the debt was paid down. Now, I doubt a single person watching that show had any major moral issue with such an offer. We might think that it's strange or different from our normal experience of commerce, but I can't imagine anyone thinking, well, that is just brutalizing slavery. We must boycott the Discovery Channel for endorsing this. Most of us, when we look at it and we understand, well, they're you know they're in that type of they're in that type of commerce, they're in that type of barter economy. That that makes sense, and yet that's almost precisely the kind of debt servitude that we see in the Old Testament. They want to buy something from someone. They need to barter. They go. They can only pay off part of it or none of it. So they go into debt to this person, and they work it off uh, with their own family or themselves or something like that. That is the exact same principle, uh, and we see it today in uh, Alaskan bush people. So I thought that was a, an interesting little uh, a parallel to our current time, um, just to, to give another illustration of what I've been talking about. So I just wanted to give that as an extra example, extra uh, little help to illustrate what we've been discussing so far. But now we're going to turn our gaze to slavery in the New Testament as we work our way through the so-called atrocities in the Bible. Enjoy the show. He knows there's no end to his suffering, and that is suffering itself. Just to know that there will never be a time when hell will turn him loose. The Bible says that Sodom and Gomorrah were burned with fire and brimstone, and the thousands of piles of sulfur, and the burnt buildings, and the burnt suffix, and the burnt cigarette confirmed that, yes they were. He is in a horrible place. Horror like horror has never been known. Let the horror of knowing that you're going to burn forever flood through your soul. I mean, they're just, they're animals. And it's funny because sometimes these sodomite activists, these queer activists, will sometimes say things like, oh, but you know, it's natural, Pastor Anderson, because the animals do it. And I always say this, well, you know, I've always said that you guys were animals, so, you know, you're just proving my point right now. Let the horror to know that you're in a dark pit and you'll never have relief from that. That is hell enough for you and hell enough for anyone. In our previous segments, we explored the history and cultural context of slavery or debt servanthood in the Old Testament, as well as the specific casuistic laws found in the Mosaic laws that govern geopolitical Israel. We saw that what is described in the Old Testament is nothing like the concept of slavery that we experienced in the antebellum south during the African slave trade, and that the Old Testament seemed to have as its goal the abolition of debt servanthood and God's expressly stated desire uh, and his command to eliminate debt altogether. Quote, There need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. End quote. Deuteronomy 15, 4 through 5. If you remember, that entire section of Deuteronomy 15 deals with God's desire to have no poverty and thus no servanthood. Now, <clears throat> we have to explore the history and cultural background of slavery in the Greco-Roman world and in Israel, specifically during the time of Jesus 
and the early church for this episode. This is because there was quite a radical shift in the viewpoints on slavery under the Mosaic Covenant when it was written and the later Hellenistic world, and specifically in Israel after it had been largely Hellenized. Now, while the Jews would have still attempted to live by the laws laid down in the Mosaic Covenant, they were surrounded by a very different culture with a very different outlook on slaves, debt, and servanthood. In fact, the Roman jurists had a very complex legal code regarding slavery, not to mention how slavery was actually practiced in the larger social context. There's also a lot of confusion that rears its head in these discussions, so not only will I be engaging with what I think are flawed skeptical arguments, but oftentimes I'm going to be attempting to correct flawed understandings in the Christian or apologetic community as well. Uh, my main sources for some of this segment is going to be Slavery by J.A. Harrell in the Dictionary of the New Testament Background, uh, Morality, Slavery, and the Jurists in the Later Roman Republic by Alan Watson, published in the Tulane Law Review, and which you can download for free. Uh, there's also a book, Slaves, Citizens, Sons, Legal Metaphors and the Epistles by Francis Lyell, Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan, and a bunch of commentaries on the relevant passages in the New Testament, such as Hendrickson's uh, New Testament Commentary, Expositor's Bible Commentary uh, by Gablin, the New International Commentary of the New Testament, uh, edited by Fee, and, and so on. There's, there's a bunch of commentaries uh, that I've used for this series. So, before I move into the specific New Testament passages that address slavery, let me begin by briefly surveying the cultural and legal context of the Roman and Hellenistic world that the Jews of the first century CE would have found themselves surrounded by. What is clear from the Roman jurists, and somewhat surprising, is that the institution of slavery was perceived to stand in direct conflict with the law of nature or natural justice. This seems to be the only institutional instance in the entire extant corpus of Roman law in which this is explicitly the case. While men like Aristotle seem to disagree, the Roman jurists were, were nearly unanimous that it is contrary to the law of nature when a person was subjugated by the dominium or the power of another. However, this should not be confused with the jurists thinking that this made slavery morally wrong or even socially unacceptable. In fact, as strange as it may sound, they were as explicit in the moral and social righteousness and rightness of slavery as an institution, as they were about the conflict it had with the law of nature. While they were divided on how slavery should be carried out and to what degree slaves had rights and so forth, they were not fundamentally divided that slavery could or even should exist as a social institu uh, institution. A common error at this point is to lump Greek and Roman, or even early Roman or later Roman systems, of institutionalized slavery into one category. They simply were not the same thing. For example, in the Greek system of slavery, freedmen were not granted citizenship and therefore could not partake in political rights. They were excluded from holding magisterial positions. They couldn't own land or even receive a mortgage, and their children were born as non-citizens. However, in the Roman and Hellenistic world, freemen could be given citizenship, uh, as their children could be as well, they frequently held high magisterial positions and could often amass a great deal of land and wealth depending on their slave duties and who their patron was. One thing that Greek, Roman, and Jewish uh, servanthood and slavery did have in common is that it was never racially motivated. 
nor was it really class repressive. That is to say, there was never really a time when a single race was targeted as an inferior race, like we have in New World African slavery, nor would a slave had had a social consciousness of being a lower class than anyone else, because basically everyone was lower class. People were just lower, lower class than the others. We, so we see uh, slave revolts, issues surrounding pay and living conditions and treatment, or even legal rights to bring charges against cruel masters and such. But what we don't find is slaves revolting as a class. That is, slaves didn't revolt against slavery in principle. And, and when the shoe was on the other foot, they would have no qualms about themselves having slaves. This is partly because slaves were often not distinguishable from freemen uh, with regards to work or pay or dress or, or even social standing. It was not uncommon for slaves and freemen to have the exact same jobs from working in the mines to being shopkeepers to artisans and even civil magistrates. One could not randomly select a group of 100 individuals from across the class spectrum and select out who was a slave and who was a freeman just by looking at them. In fact, there were some positions, uh, like the, the, the treasurer, that they could only be a slave to maintain, even though it was a high government position because they didn't want someone with the freedom to run off with the pot. The population estimates about the amount of slavery that occurred in the Roman Empire during the first century vary pretty widely. This is because the Roman Empire was diverse in culture and geography, agriculture, politics, and so forth, and the slave population seemed to be actually higher in rural areas of the empire than it was in cities such as Rome. So the estimates range, depending on geography, from 15 to 20% on the low end to upward of 80% on the high end, with most historians falling somewhere in the 33 to 60% average uh, aggregate range. This means that at the very least, it is thought that one out of every three people that one encountered on the street would have been a slave presently or would have been one at some point in their life. This fact will become important when we begin to consider Jesus's and Paul's perspective on slavery shortly. Now what we also find that will greatly affect our reading of the text is that in areas like Israel we had numerous legal law systems all converging in one area. So when we read of the servants in the New Testament, we have to go through the process of attempting to determine if we're talking about a Jewish concept of debt servitude, a Jewish concept of foreign servitude, a Greek concept of chattel slavery, or a Roman concept of chattel servitude, a Jew who operates under the Jewish concept engaging with the Greek concept, and so on and so forth. On top of this, we have to determine the kind of servant we're talking about. Were they born into slavery? Were they bought? Were they conquered and enslaved? Are they a bonded freeman working off debt? Are they a freeman who is working for their former master as a patron? And so on and so forth. This becomes much more complicated, especially in an area like Israel, where we had an observant Jew uh, who would likely still have followed the Old Testament concept of debt servitude mixed with Hellenistic Jews, who might have practiced both Old Testament debt servitude and Roman chattel servitude, and Gentiles who could have practiced Roman chattel servitude, and a cocktail of other mixes thrown in there. This is going to lead to all kinds of questions about why someone like Jesus 
would have so little to say directly about slavery. Is it possible that because he was in an almost exclusively Jewish context, he would have only been engaging with Jewish debt servitude and not spoken against it? Well, we'll explore these and other issues in our expository comments after we deal with uh, the most off-sided New Testament verses dealing with slavery. Here, I will not only interact with passages that adjust uh, address slavery as an institution or as a concept, not merely in passing in a narrative or parable about the fact that some patron was a slave or a servant. I have also chosen to select only one passage if it's multiply attested. For example, the same saying of Jesus recorded in multiple gospels or multiple times in one gospel. I would also like to point out something interesting before we explore the verses. We'll see that the terms slave, servant, and bondservant appear in the following verses. When I went to my Greek New Testament, I found that they all translate the same Greek word, doulos, or the verb douleo, which translate as servant, slave, bond, bondman, or, you know, as a verb, to serve, to be in bondage, to do service. Therefore, we should not make too much of an interpretive distinction when we see in the English one verse say slave, another say servant, and yet another say bondservant. There may be contextual issues that alter the translation, which we'll explore on some of these, but generally I think it's up to the translator preference, really. I would also like to remind the reader that what follows will be more a kind of listed response and, and not fully developed essays. I should also add that while some of these seem like strange verses to be used to address slavery, um, I, I'm using them because I've had atheists quote these as examples of the Bible affirming slavery. Now, okay, let's get into it. Number one, Luke 7, 2. Quote, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. End quote. What we can see in this verse is that the great concern that this Roman centurion, who's a non-commissioned officer in probably in the army of Herod Antipas, uh, and, and, and the great concern that he had for his servant. This is a Gentile, and thus his servant would not have the same freedoms as a Jewish one under the Mosaic law. And yet we have a ranking officer not only caring for his servant, but going out of his way and humbling himself to find an itinerant Jewish rabbi because he's heard he could do miracles and heal the sick. This would have been an act of desperation for basically a loved family member, not typically the actions of a master who lorded it over their slaves. Some commentators speculate that this particular centurion could actually be a partial or a full convert to Judaism, due to the grow, uh, glowing recommendation from the Jewish leaders and the fact that he had helped build the synagogue at Capernaum, something we find out in the, in the other verses. While this is not a verse that directly conveys the author's views on slavery, it's a good window into the fact that at the very least, slavery, even to, to a centurion, was not universally brutish and that slaves could have been deeply cared for by their masters as part of the household. Number two, Luke 17, 7 to 10, <clears throat> quote, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to him, 
prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. End quote. Here Jesus seems to approve of the belittled attitude of the servants. But is he affirming of slavery? The meaning of this parable, aside from the implications that it has directly on the institution of slavery, is kind of complex. But what we find, uh, what we must first notice, is that it's a parable. That is, it belongs to the genre of literature known as a parable and means that Jesus is talking uh, about features of daily life and extrapolates a principle from them. In my mind, this is one of the more difficult parables to understand, let alone infer Jesus' actual views on the institution of slavery. This is due in part to two different factors. Number one, Luke is here using the parable in direct contrast to one previously given in Luke 12. And number two, Jesus is likely using a literary device known as instructive irony. We'll look at the first, uh, at the contrast that's occurring between this parable and the previous one. And then we'll look at what's instructive irony, uh, what it is, and its role in this parable before drawing out the application of this verse to the institution of slavery. Let's look at number one. In Luke 12, we find the following parable, quote, Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants who the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. End quote. Some commentators have noticed that these two parables teach seemingly direct opposite things. The parable found in Luke 12 is exhorting the disciples of Jesus to endure in their patience on the Lord's coming. The meaning is clear. Those who are found to persevere will be invited in to sup with the Lord, and he uh, will serve them, even though he's their master. He'll serve them on what, the Revelation, on what Revelation calls the great wedding feast of the Lamb, a theme also common in Jesus' teaching throughout the Gospels. Yet, in our parable in Luke 17, Jesus seems to be saying the exact opposite. Well, there he's saying that the, the servants don't get to come in and, and eat with the master. The master won't serve them. They serve him, and then they get to eat. Why in this parable is the servant not expected to eat the meal with his master, like it was in the previous? Is Jesus contradicting himself? Well, the reason for this we'll find in exploring number two, Jesus' use of instructive irony. What is instructive irony? Well, instructive irony is a literary tool in which the speaker uses an ironic situation or an ironic juxtaposition to present a point that the reader would not expect. It happens all the time in Jewish and Old Testament literature. It's one of the most common motifs throughout the Old Testament. When we start reading the Gospels, we find instructive irony consistently used in the teaching of Jesus and in the larger narrative presentation of the Gospel writers. And why wouldn't we? They're steeped in that Old Testament tradition. In this instance, the irony is that it is the slave who is at fault in the parable if they expect to be served, though they're a servant. The point of the parable in Luke 17 is not to tell us how God will reward his faithful servant like it was in the last one, 
but rather that a person who finds himself in servitude to another should not expect to be rewarded for doing their work, let alone rewarded for begrudgingly doing the will of the one to whom he serves. The principle here is that the master does not owe the servant anything for merely doing what he was asked to do. If the servant would like to be blessed by the master beyond what he normally receives, he should go above and beyond what was asked and act from a position of genuine service, not a position of begrudging obedience. The reason for the difference in these parables is actually quite simple once we understand instructive irony and we could view it through that lens. Neither of them is meant to be a commentary or, or some universal rule. The first is a parable about the reward that God will give to his faithful servant. The other is a parable about the attitude of the disciples when doing the will of God. And it's here that we can see that this passage isn't actually a picture of Jesus' view on slavery as an institution. He's rather using a culturally understood institution as a metaphor to explain a spiritual point. It, it's much more like a sermon illustration rather than an op-ed piece in the New York Times. We should no more take this as Jesus tacitly approving of slavery as we should read the parable of the prodigal son as him approving of reckless living and self-righteousness, or the parable of the Good Samaritan as his approval of mugging people on the roadways. Number three, John eight thirty-five. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. End quote. Here again, we have a verse where Jesus is not affirming slavery as an institution, but is merely drawing on it as a cultural convention to make a spiritual point. Yes, this verse has literally been used against me to show, will Jesus affirm slavery? <laughs> in this case, Jesus is, is just having a dialogue with the Pharisees who think that simply because they are children of Abraham, they're de facto God's people and are in, so to speak. Jesus' point here is that it takes more than just genetics to be part of God's people. Rather, they are like servants in the house of Abraham. They may partake of the benefits while they live there, but they could be set free and dismissed at any time. They, don't, they do not partake in the inheritance as the sons do. So again, Jesus is here simply just using a cultural image to make a broader theological point. <clears throat> Number four, John 13, 16. Quote, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. End quote. Here again, Jesus is not affirming slavery, but simply drawing their attention to a principle of servanthood. He states this to cut off any thought of his disciples that any one of them is, quote-unquote, too good to wash the feet of those to whom Jesus is sending them to. The point is that if Jesus, the Son of God, God come to earth, is willing to condescend to serve humanity, even to wash their feet, which was one of the most menial and debasing tasks that a house servant did at the time, who are the disciples to think that they are above it when he sends them out to share the gospel and serve others? Number five, 1 Corinthians seven twenty to 24 quote, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? 
Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he, was he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. End quote. I will attempt to keep this explanation brief since the passage itself is not only theologically complex, but there are a lot of grammatical issues that play into how it's translated into the English that I, I don't think we really need to go into. But here, there are two principles that we must keep in mind if we're to understand this passage. Firstly, Paul is not opposed to the concept of slavery per se. While I think he is opposed to the concept of chattel slavery, and I think we'll see slavery overall uh, as a human institution and even debt servanthood, he clearly thinks that as Christians, we're servants of God. That is, we are in bondage to sin and death, or we were in bondage to sin and death and in debt to it up to our ears, and that God paid for our redemption with his own life and now we are no longer servants of sin and death, but we are servants of Christ. Paradoxically, Paul also considers us freemen who have been freed by God, who are considered to be sons and daughters. Now, that's because we're not actually servants. We're not actually freemen. Those are just helpful analogies to point to different aspects of our relationship to God. I think that both concepts are meant to point as analogies to differing aspects or parts of our relationship with God through Christ in the same way that God being called father is an analogy as God is not male nor genetically our father. So Paul, uh, so for Paul, we are both bonded to God and freed by God with respect to human sinfulness and oppression by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A second concept that Paul operates with is the concept of heavenly citizenship. That is, that Christians are citizens of the kingdom of God primarily before they are citizens of the kingdom of man, and that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we function as ambassadors to the kingdom of man. This means that for Paul, our priority is to be ambassadors of Christ, sharing the good news of Jesus, rather than social reformers, trying to turn the kingdom of man into the kingdom of God. This plays out in various different ways elsewhere, but in our present verse, this means that if someone is a slave, they are to be a Christian first, because in Christ there is neither slave nor free, as we'll see elsewhere soon. For Paul, the slave is free in Christ, that is, he's free in a more essential or more uh, prime way, and the freeman is a bondsman to Christ in a more fundamental or essential way. And it goes round and round. The primary purpose for Paul is not social reform. He's not trying to capture the kingdom of man and claim it for God. He's trying to plunder the riches of its storehouses, which are you and me, and bring them into the kingdom of God. Thus, when he tells the slaves to not be concerned that they're slaves, he's not saying that it's good that they're a slave because he thinks that slavery is a good institution or something. In fact, he tells them that, that, that if they're able to gain their freedom, they should do so, likely because he thinks that uh, the mobility that it would afford uh, would help them spread the gospel even further. Yet Paul is concerned with them being good examples of Jesus 
to witness to everyone in their lives. As Christians, we are to share the gospel wherever we find ourselves, whether that be as a freeman, a slave, a prisoner, or a master. We can see this in Colossians 3 when Paul writes, quote, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. End quote. We will look at this passage in more detail later, but notice that the point is that no matter what your station in life is, the goal is humility and that we are to share the gospel with everyone in our lives, no matter who they are or how we know them. We can think of Paul's exhortation to those married uh, to unbelieving spouses to not divorce their spouse and to try to correct that situation, but rather to be a Christ-like spouse to attempt to win over their unbelieving husband or wife to Christ. This is the same message Paul gives here. He's not affirming slavery, but because his concern is with the spread of the gospel and not starting some social revolution, his goal is for the slaves to be Christ-like, even in their condition as slaves, to win over their masters and fellow slaves to Christ. Paul himself, though a freeman, saw himself as a servant to those he ministered to. In 1 Corinthians 9.19, he said, quote, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. End quote. Another aspect of this could be not only that Paul is unconcerned with driving social change, but that he is also aware that the direct attack on such a fundamental aspect of the culture of the day would just be a futile effort. Every slave revolt attempted ended in massive governmental crackdown and the brutal execution of everyone involved. Not only that, but the consequences were usually even harsher conditions and harsher treatment of the slaves that remained in the area, and that the group that quote-unquote sponsored or under, ideologically underwrote the whole revolt, uh, revolt were seen as violent anarchists who would not only lose credibility, but were viewed with disdain and contempt from there on out. One of the many reasons that Paul could have been uninterested in social reform is precisely because he wanted Christianity to not only evade more persecution than it was already getting, but also for it to be seen as a kind and gentle Christ-like movement within the broader Jewish and Roman communities. And from history, we can see that this strategy worked. We know that while the church was heavily persecuted, one of the major reasons why Christianity spread so rapidly was precisely because of its policies of non-retaliation, grace in response to hatred, love that crossed all social, economic, and cultural boundaries, and a sense of genuine forgiving and loving community. That is precisely what attracted so many people to it during the first century or two of its existence. We can think of Paul basing this course of action on the teaching of Jesus in the parable of the leaven. 
In Matthew 13:33, Jesus says, quote, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. End quote. Here we see that a principle that Jesus and the apostles were working from is that rather than overtly going after social change, they would attempt to leaven society with the gospel and allow the change to slowly and organically rise. The gospel is so much more subversively effective than many on the political right seem to think these days. They would rather ram religion into the state and schools rather than allowing it to affect the hearts and minds of people who experience the love and grace of Jesus through his people. And so they often turn off more people than they would need to. Not to mention that this is the exact opposite of what we see Paul doing. While he doesn't explicitly attack slavery as an institution, he begins to leaven the dough of culture with his teaching that there is no real or meaningful difference between master and slave, male and female, or Jew and Gentile. He was establishing the principle that in the eyes of God, there was no qualitative distinction, or even that God cared for the lesser, the weak one, the outcast, the sinner, and therefore as Christians and children of God, we should not hold those distinctions as the nations do or look down on the weak, the outcast, the sinner, the poor, the servant either. Number six. This is going to be a couple verses. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Colossians 3.11 Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. These are verses that simply show the belief in Paul that in Christ there was to be no distinctions between the slave and the free, no higher or lower station based on wealth or power. In principle, this is a tacit rejection of the institution of slavery because one would not be able to justify one's right over another if all men are equal before God in Christ. At the very least, this categorically opposes Roman or Greek chattel slave systems, even if Jewish debt servanthood where the master doesn't really own body and soul the servant, was a necessary economic institution until free markets and other economic institutions could take its place. That Paul said it so many times in so many different contexts to so many different congregations helps us see just how important this concept of the unity and dignity of all humanity is to Pauline thought. Number seven. Colossians 3, 22-24 Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. End quote. This is really just a further exposition on the principle that we discussed in regards to 1 Corinthians 7, 20-24. We see here that the principal importance is that the servant is to serve the master just as 
a servant of Christ. They are to be good examples who bear witness to their masters and likely their fellow servants about the grace and forgiveness of Jesus to sinners. Undoubtedly, the principle is the same that we see in 1 Peter 2.18, where Peter writes, quote, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. End quote. It is really a social application of the principle of turn the other cheek found in the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, Paul extends this principle in Titus 2, 9 through 10, where he states, quote, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Here, he explicitly affirms the principle we have been exploring, that by their good behavior, even as slaves, the Christian could be well-pleasing and then could adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This means that they present the gospel, which is the doctrine of God our Savior, to their masters, or more likely when their masters ask them why they behave so well compared to the other slaves, They're, that they wouldn't have any bad behavior that would be seen as the same fruit of the poisonous tree. Gandhi once said something like, I like their Christ, I dislike their Christians. The believer is to adorn the message of Jesus with a life well-lived in love and grace and integrity. When a Christian acts poorly, it affects not only their witness, but also the view of Christianity held by those who observe them. In fact, if Christians listened to Paul more on this, we likely would not have so many people rejecting Christianity because of all the crimes that the church has committed in the history and of the bad behavior, hypocrisy, self-righteousness, and backbiting that they often see among Christians in church. Paul even continues this theme in 1 Timothy 6, 1-2, when he states, quote, Let all who are under a yoke as a bondservant regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. End quote. In this verse, he explicitly states that the purpose of the slave's good behavior toward their master is that the name of God, and presumably the message of Jesus, is not reviled, or, in modern parlance, hated. Here, he states unambiguously that the reason for their good behavior is to present a good witness for Jesus Christ, not to try to gain a good life for themselves. Number 8, Colossians 4.1 Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. End quote. Here we can see another example of Paul using the principle of leaven to abolish slavery but from the other side of the coin. Now, some of you might be asking, I don't see him mentioning leaven. Well, it's often said that the best way to love one's enemy is to stop calling your enemy your enemy. Here we can imagine a Christian master reading this passage and realizing that those in his position are not only equals as humans created in the image of God, but that in Christ they are not even supposed to be distinguished as slave or free 
because they, quote, also have a master in heaven, end quote. Imagine the reaction to finding out that all the while you had a slave that you were enslaving your brother. How long could you maintain your stance that slavery is acceptable if you believed, along with Paul, that you are all one in Christ and that we are even supposed to, quote, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, end quote, Philippians 2.3. This includes all others, Gentiles, Jews, male and female, slave or free. The cognitive dissonance for those who took this seriously would be absolutely deafening. Here we can compare Paul's exhortations to slaves and compare it to that of their masters. Paul's advice is not that different than what a marriage counselor would give to a marriage today that's on the rocks. Both parties are to be the best spouse that they can be to one another and by their positive behavior and love help the other to be the best spouse possible that they can be. That is, their first responsibility is to be concerned with their own actions and to stop worrying about their, what their partner does or does not do to make them happy. In fact, this is the same advice that Paul and Peter give to married couples. If they are married to an unbeliever, they are not to leave them, but are to live as Christ-like as they can to attempt to win them over with their witness. They are not to say that they are free to complain and retaliate because look how awful their husband is. Wives are submit to their husbands. It doesn't say only to do so if the husband is the most loving, shining example of Jesus. They are to act as Christ-like as they can to their husbands regardless of the situation. And the husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This doesn't mean that they're only supposed to act Christ-like when their wives are not cruel or naggy or abusive. They are to unequivocally and sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved the church with their whole body and soul. Paul unifies the principles that he's given to wives and to husbands in Ephesians 5.21 when he says, quote, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. End quote. The major assumption of the gospel is grace in the face of sin. That is, even when others sin against us, we show them grace and forgiveness, because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So to the slaves, Paul says that they should be the best Christ-like examples that they can be to their masters. To the master, he encourages them to also be the most Christ-like examples that they can be. And it's hard to imagine that this would not entail seeing their slaves as equals and thus free them just as Christ freed us from our servitude. In neither case can one appeal to an unsaved, unjust master or an unsaved, lazy servant as an excuse to not act in accordance with the gospel and show loving kindness, justice, and grace. That is the message of Paul. Whatever situation you find yourself in, you are to be the best example of Christ that you can be. He is not defending slavery as a moral good or anything of the sort. Number 9, 1 Timothy 1.10, quote, The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, end quote. 
Now, this is as close to an overt and explicit condemnation of slavery as an institution that we're going to get in the writings of Paul. Here, he's talking about sins that are in violation of the law of God, and we notice that he includes what he calls enslavers, that is, those who put others into slavery. The, the Greek word is andropotesis, it means one who enslaves. In fact, he even continues on to say in verse 11 that these are contrary to sound doctrine, quote, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, end quote. What this basically means is that Paul and his companions and the churches understand the gospel, that is, that all are free in Christ, the actions listed are seen as immoral and contrary to the freedom of the gospel. Now, while we would quibble about the other attributes in the list, such as homosexuality, right? I mean, that's a whole different episode in itself about why that's included. It's clear that Paul lists those who enslave others as those who oppose the law of God and the gospel of Jesus. I'm not sure one could get a clearer statement that Paul thought that those who enslaved others were standing in contradiction to the law of God and to the freedom offered to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we've seen, not only does Paul explicitly condemn those who enslave others as sinful and contrary to the gospel over and over, the verses normally cited by skeptics so far to say that the New Testament endorses slavery never do. Rather, their exhortations to believers that no matter what situation they find themselves in, even if they are in the lowest station one could be in, they are to comport themselves as one who has been redeemed by God. Now, this should be enough to settle the issue, but I think there are a few more questions yet to be answered. Here, we will draw together all the strings of thought from these verses and some from the previous section on slavery in the Old Testament, and discuss Jesus' views on slavery. And then we'll end with a brief analysis of Paul's letter to Philemon as a kind of case study. So, what are Jesus' views on slavery? Jesus, we have to remember, was in an, in an entirely Jewish context, and had almost nothing to say about the Gentile world. He very rarely said anything outside of his Jewish context. He was most likely only engaging with the Old Testament Jewish concept of debt servanthood whenever he spoke of it. Now, what we find in Jesus' comments are not a direct repudiation of debt servanthood as an institution, but it is undeniable that he was deeply troubled and adamantly opposed to not taking care of, or worse, taking advantage of, the poor. When we consider that this is the exact view of God in the Old Testament, it's hard to say that Jesus was not opposed to debt servanthood. In fact, when we look at his comments about divorce, we see something interesting that sheds more light on the issue. Jesus tells the Pharisees that God allowed divorce because of their sinful nature and the sinful nature of the people. That is, he allowed it as a safety net because he knew his people would sin and that Allowing for divorce was better than letting Israel fall into the immoral practices of the other nations. But that doesn't mean it was his ideal. When we look at the Old Testament laws about debt servanthood, we find very much the same concepts in place. God's ideal is that there be no poor among the children of Israel. 
Yet because of their sinfulness, specifically greed, that would keep them from ensuring that there were in fact no poor among them. Despite God's laws requiring the corners of their field be left on unharvested, not charging interest on loans, giving freely to their neighbors, absolving debt during Sabbath years, and so on, God instituted debt servanthood that allowed the Jews to pay off their debts, but did not allow debts to last longer than seven years, paid off or not. While we touched on the concept of God's disdain for those who oppress the poor and his desire that there be no poor in the land, we can here cite a few more references that drive this point further than we did in the last couple episodes. In Isaiah 58, 6-7, we read the following, quote, Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them, and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. In this passage, God was condemning those who either fast for the wrong reasons or refuse to fast at all. That is, his, the fast that he desires is not just not eating food. It's taking care of the poor and the oppressed and the homeless and making sure that there is no one who is in need. In this case, it is those who failed to keep the fast of the Sabbath year, the fast every seven years where the land was to go untilled and the servants and their debt were to be set free. In addition to this, we see that one of the purposes of the weekly Sabbath was also to share one's bread with the hungry, invite the homeless into one's house, and to clothe them. Israel was judged by God for not only failing to do any of these, but for actively oppressing the poor. We can see this in passages such as Amos 8, 4 through 6. Quote, Hear this, you who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell again? And the Sabbath, that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah small and a shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver, silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff off the wheat. End quote. In this case, God was judging those who would not wait for the Sabbath to be over, so that they could continue to use false scales to further impoverish the poor, and then ultimately force them into debt servanthood, where they could be bought for silver, or even as cheap as the cost of sandals. Now really fast, just for those who didn't understand that thing about the ephah and the shekel, making the ephah small and the shekel great, that was a reference to their weights and their scales. So they would limit their weight. So what they were saying was an ephah of flour, like a unit of measure of flour, was actually smaller than what it was. And what they were saying was a shekel, right? They're getting more for their money because they'd shave the corners off a shekel. So they'd say, this is a shekel, but they would have saved the cost, if that makes sense. Right. Right. So so uh, the, in this case, God is judging those who just who just couldn't wait. Right. Who, who are trying and going out of their way to impoverish the poor rather than help them. Right. This tells us not only were the Israelites not following the commands about freeing servants, 
but they were also not following the commands to ensure their fellow Israelites did not go hungry or homeless. The statement that they could be bought for a price of sandals means that they would allow a fellow Jew to go into debt servanthood if they could not even afford the artificially inflated cost of the sandals on their feet and the feet of their children. Right? So if they came to someone and they needed to buy a sandal, the sandals would be such a cost that they would need to go in debt to buy the sandals, the very things you needed to cover your feet. We may think of someone going into debt over the price of a plot of land, but really over sandals? This is how far Israel had sunk. And for those of you who are tempted to say that this only applied to their fellow Jews and that God allowed some, some kind of xenophobic inequality of the foreigner, God also states in Ezekiel 22:29, quote, The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and the needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice, end quote. If we remember, God commanded that the Israelites were to deal fairly with the sojourners in their land. But here we see them exhorting and thus impoverishing the sojourners as well. This was simply not acceptable to God. He was not only interested that there be no poor Israelites, but also that there would be no poor, period. While we commonly think of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as stories of judgment about sexuality, when God actually tells us the reason for their destruction, it's quite different. In, he states it in Ezekiel 16.49, quote, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. End quote. God is not merely concerned with the poor in Israel, but with the poor in all lands, Jewish or otherwise. He judged Sodom and, the, and Gomorrah and the cities of the plains because they oppressed the poor and did not care for the needy, even though they had the means to do so, which would have led to a lot of servanthood in their land. Therefore, it should not be a surprise when Jesus states that part of the good news of his coming is not simply that he brings redemption for sin, right? He's not just here to bring salvation, although that's clearly the main import, but also, quote, he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives, Luke 4, 18, and that, quote, good news is proclaimed to the poor, Matthew eleven five. Even though Jesus' goal and ministry was not explicitly about social change, and it was about bringing people back to God, he undoubtedly had the same outlook on poverty and thus the same issues with slavery as God did in the Old Testament. That is, that due to the hardness of the hearts of people and the reality of life in a fallen world, God allows for a certain kind of debt servitude in that subsistence barter economy, but not one that's chattel, not one that's perpetual, one that, one that, one that is, is, is only debt-based. Even though the ultimate goal is the end of poverty and thus the end of servanthood. It is no surprise then that Jesus is the one who gives us the parable of the leaven presented above. It was Jesus' mission that the gospel, freedom from sin and freedom from captivity, would be the leaven that would permeate through the dough of the world. 
Jesus did not come out explicitly against slavery as an institution, but he undoubtedly began the subversive campaign to put an end to it altogether. We'll see in the next episode why it was an explicitly Christian movement that was the first movement to oppose slavery in principle as an institution and to put an end to it. That was the abolitionist movement. But now, let's wrap up by looking at Philemon, right? The, the, the book of Philemon in the New Testament as a kind of case study for what we've seen. Many skeptics have viewed Philemon as Paul's expressed acceptance of slavery, a reading that I think is as false as false can get. This analysis will be brief as it's going to draw on much of what we have just said previously with regards to Paul's view and purpose in living, in a, living a Christ-like example. In the letter, which is really only 25 verses and, and would just take a couple minutes to read if you wanted to pause and go read it, Paul writes to Philemon about his former runaway slave named Onesimus, both of which had become Christians apparently under the ministry of Paul. For the letter, the background on the situation is vague. We are not sure when in the timeline Onesimus ran away from Philemon. It could have been years before becoming a Christian, or it could have been after becoming a Christian, or after Philemon became a Christian, or, or any, any number of, of, of ways. What we do know, however, is that at the time of writing the letter, Onesimus and Philemon had both become Christians, and Onesimus is a runaway slave doing ministry with Paul. It's in this context that Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, yet he doesn't do it because he thinks that, you know, as a slave, it's Onesimus' duty to be a slave, or that he must return a slave to his master. In fact, as we saw, <clears throat> under Jewish law, he didn't have to. We, he, he could have allowed him to go on as a free man and provide for him according to the Jewish law, as we saw in the previous episode. Rather, Paul sends him back for a reconciliation to occur between two brothers in Christ. Notice what Paul says, quote, in verse 15, quote, Perhaps the reason we, he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. End quote. The goal for Paul is not merely, merely to return a slave to slavery. He says that it possibly all happened so that Philemon could have him back forever, but not as a slave, but now as a dear brother. That is, Paul is telling Philemon to not just take back Onesimus as a servant in his house, but as a member of his house. Paul is here giving us an example of applying the gospel that he's mentioned elsewhere. This is what it would look like when a master understands that in Christ there is neither slave nor free. In the same way that Philemon would receive Paul himself into his home, that is how Paul desires that Philemon would forgive and receive Onesimus. Therefore, for the skeptic to read Philemon as if it was Paul affirming slavery has committed themselves to an extremely shallow and biased reading of not only this specific book, but also to the entire Pauline corpus. Rather than this letter showing that Paul affirms slavery, 
it is an excellent example to the exact contrary position. Paul was not affirming slavery, but showing how the bonds of slavery are broken and overcome by living in accordance with the gospel, that one of the applications of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the breaking down of these social divides and to put an end to such social injustices. The gospel, again, is to Paul the leaven that saturates the kingdom of man and brings redemption to humanity and declares freedom to the captives. As we've seen, the New Testament does not endorse slavery as many skeptics assert that it does. In fact, rather than endorse it, we find Paul explicitly condemning it and Jesus not only undermining it, but giving us the structure and the means to overcome and overthrow it. It was not incidental to Jesus, but was expressly one of the driving reasons that he came to declare freedom to the captives, good news to the poor. In addition to this, Jesus and Paul and the other New Testament authors not only opposed it in the abstract, but showed us a better way, a way forward. It would not come through violence of slave revolts. It would come through humility kindness, forgiveness, and understanding ourselves to be no better than anyone else. It would come through living consistently in the light of the gospel of grace and allowing the gospel to be a subversive leaven in the dough of society. And yet, sadly, this is not how the church has acted throughout the centuries. If the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are opposed to institutionalize slavery, especially that of a violent, oppressive chattel slavery, then why was the church not only engaging in and practicing it throughout the centuries, but why were some of its biggest advocates churchmen who used the Bible as their very justification for it? Well, those are some of the questions that we will explore in our next segment, Slavery in Christendom. Thank you again for joining me today on the Free Thinker Podcast. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please drop me a line at freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at www.freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or you can visit the Free Thinker Podcast group page on Facebook. We will see you next time. And until then, may God bless and illuminate you. Have a good night.